0: Good morning. This morning, we are going to be discussing a sermon entitled, The Righteousness of the Pharisees. So if you would, grab a Bible and turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter. We're going to read a text that we find there in Matthew, the fifth chapter, and discuss the righteousness of the Pharisees this morning. Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way first, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee to the officer and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, Committeth adultery. Again ye have heard that it's been said by them of old, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communications be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Ye have heard that it has been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. Whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy cloak, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him thou wilt borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse them. Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. The text we just read is part of what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in the sermon, had just moved past sort of his introductory remarks, um, the Beatitudes, and begins to get into the meat of the sermon. And remember where Jesus was at at this time in his public ministry. He had begun to gain a little bit of a reputation. He had begun to gain some notoriety with the the miracles he had performed in, in his teaching. And no doubt, the rumors had begun to swirl in the religious circles about who this Jesus was and what he was teaching. Who was this uneducated Galilean carpenter? This guy is going around the Sea of Galilee and and he's telling people that they need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who, Who does this guy think he is? And what does he come to do? And I'm sure that the the rumors had begun to spread that he was going to try and turn the Jewish world on its head, that he was some sort of revolutionary that was going to try and do away with what the religious leaders of the day had going on. So he begins this section of the sermon by saying that he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill them. And then he makes a statement that was probably shocking to the crowd and was certainly shocking to the religious leaders of the day. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that unless you are more righteous than the religious bigwigs of the day, unless you're more righteous righteous than these religious figures, these these people that were in front of the people and and appeared righteous, unless you're more righteous than them, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I'm sure some of the people there listening to this, and and some of the people that that heard Jesus' teaching thought, well, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, Jesus, Jesus, what are you saying? Hold on a minute. These, you need, we need to be more righteous than, than those guys? Those are the guys that, that run things. They, they're the ones that are the leaders of the day. You're saying that we need to be more righteous than them? How are we supposed to be more righteous than, than those guys? So, Jesus spends the, the rest of, of chapter 5 there that we just read, and then if you continue on and read into chapter 6 of, of Matthew, he, he's laying out how the righteousness of the citizens of the kingdom must exceed the righteousness of those Pharisees. He talks about such subjects as anger and lust, making oaths, retaliation, and loving our enemies. He lays out how in the kingdom the righteous will live in what is expected of his disciples. But let's take a step back for a moment and talk about who these Pharisees were. If you study the ministry of Jesus, you will notice, and you'll notice this into into Acts, if you study those things you'll notice that the Pharisees didn't exactly see eye-to-eye with Jesus on a lot of things. So let's notice for a moment just who these guys were. The word Pharisee means separated one. They were one of the three chief Jewish sects during the time of Jesus They were a group that fought the influence of foreign culture from invading their religion. They viewed themselves as strict adherents to the law. They stood for rigid observance to the letter of the law. They wanted to keep the Jewish religion quote-unquote pure. And they were the group that controlled the office of the high priest at the time of Jesus' ministry. Of course, later in the ministry of Jesus, they would be instrumental uh, in the plot to capture and kill Jesus. They were very, very influential. They had a lot of control in the Jewish world. Not all of the Pharisees were bad men. You might remember a year or two ago, Tim gave a couple of sermons about a couple of Pharisees named Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They were Pharisees who would later convert to Christ. Of course, Paul was a Pharisee who would later come to Christ, but many of the Pharisees rejected Jesus. They refused to listen to him. They refused to see him as the Messiah, and they ultimately rejected him. But these were the guys that were viewed at the time as when Jesus' ministry begins. They were viewed as some of the most religious people of the day. They were They were very open, they were very in your face with just how religious, just how pure, just how holy they were. They were the religious elite of the day. And Jesus looks at these religious elite of the day and he says, don't be like them. You must, as one of my disciples, be more righteous than them. So how do we do that? How does our righteousness as disciples of Christ exceed their righteousness? And that's what Jesus expands upon or expounds upon in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want for us to notice five things from the text that we read to open up this morning and see just how our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. The first thing that I want for us to notice, and this is important for us to keep in mind as we we discuss this section that we read this morning, but as we look at all of Scripture, is Jesus' attitude toward law and obedience. Many people uh, might look at this section of the Sermon on the Mount and other parts of the New Testament an attempt to say that we no longer live under law. That we're now under grace and there's no place for law in the life of a Christian. That Christ came to to put an end to law. That he came to destroy the need for law in the life of the Christian. But notice what Jesus said. He said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Christ's attitude wasn't that He was coming to to break the law or destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. and Of course, He perfectly did that. He obeyed every single one of the commandments. He never once sinned. He perfectly obeyed the law that He lived under. Christ placed the utmost importance on observing and obeying the law. But Jeff... And I can see the wheels turning in some of your heads right now. You're you're saying, Jeff, he's referring to the old law, right? He lived under the old law. Jesus was, was, was a Jew, so he lived under the old law, the law of Moses. And we know that the old law was nailed to the cross. And you are absolutely correct. We do not live under the old law. Once Christ fulfilled every jot, every tittle of it, just like he said it was nailed to the cross and we are no longer under that law. But that does not mean that we are no longer under any law. If you look at Galatians, the 6th chapter, in the 2nd verse, it says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Today, we live under the law of Christ. The new law that He came to establish... And when Jesus died on the cross, the old law was taken away, and his will in the New Testament went into effect, as we can read there in Hebrews, the ninth chapter. And that leads us to the second thing that I want for us to notice, and that is what what does it mean to fulfill the law? I would point your attention to an interesting verse that we find in Romans, the 13th chapter and the 10th verse. It says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law. So Jeff, you're telling me that all we have to do to fulfill this law that we live under, the new law that Christ came to bring, is that that we have to love. Right? What? That's what Paul says. That's what we just read. And I tend to agree with Paul. So yes, to fulfill the law means to love. Well, that's great, right? That means that now all I have to do is have a warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart and have good intentions and post something on Facebook or Instagram every once in a while about a Bible verse that I like or or that I love people around me and, and, and I've done my duty to fulfill the law. And if you think that, you are wrong. Love is more than warm feelings in your heart. If you were here a year or two ago, we went through a series on what it means to love. If you've been here over the last couple of months on Wednesday nights, Sean went through the book and Song of Solomon and talked about love uh, in our relationships and what it means to love our spouses Love is more than an emotion. Love is a choice. Love is service. Love is sacrifice. And yes, love is even obedience to the law of God. If we love God, we will keep his commandments, as it says there in John, the 14th chapter, in the 15th verse. When Christ said that He came to fulfill the law, He meant more than just to fulfill the ceremonial aspects of the law, more than just the mechanics of the sacrifices and things like that, but He also meant to truly fulfill the law by loving mankind enough to serve them, by loving mankind enough to lay down His life as a ransom for them and to obey the will of God. And we, as His disciples, must follow His example and fulfill the law by love in all the ramifications of what that means to love the Lord. The tricky thing about love, though, is that it's really easy for us to love someone, to treat them a certain way when they are treating us well. It's real easy to love someone, when we're getting our way and everything's hunky-dory and, and everything's great, it, it, it's real easy in those instances, right? But we so often in our relationships, in, in, in our worldly relationships and in our relationships, our spiritual relationships, we often fail to love when things aren't going our way. When things aren't easy, when that other person is, isn't really being lovable back. But the love that we're called to have And the love that is required to fulfill the love of Christ isn't conditional on us being treated first, treated well first. This is what Jesus was talking about in the text that we read earlier in verse 38 when he talks about turning the other cheek and walking the extra mile. We love even when we aren't being treated in a loving fashion. Sinclair Ferguson wrote, Love is not determined by the loveliness or the attractiveness he finds in its object. His love is not conditional upon his being loved first. His love is not directed only towards those who love he can rely on in return. No, his love is controlled by the knowledge that when he was God's enemy and a sinner, the Father first loved him. That should be our attitude as disciples of Christ. And thanks be to God that even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us. He gave His life for us. That's the love that Christ came to show, and that's the love that we're called to have in order for us to fulfill the law. The third thing that I want for us to notice that Jesus addressed in our text this morning was the dangers of traditionalism, and that's a five-dollar word. But much of the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees can be traced back to the view that the Pharisees had toward their interpretation of the law and the role that, that, that traditions played in their religion. The Pharisees accepted that not just the Torah, not just the written law, was authoritative of equal importance was the oral law. Their interpretation of the law was just as authoritative as the law that Moses gave them. Josephus said that the Pharisees were, quote, experts in the interpretation of the law, that they were obsessed with the observance of the law, but along with the written law, they were equally obsessed with the regulations handed down by former generations not recorded in the law of Moses. They had made their traditions just as important as the law. The problem with many of these traditions, though, is that they were not from God, they were from man. This is exactly what Jesus was speaking about in Matthew, the 15th chapter, verses 8 and 9, when he said, The people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And this is at the heart of what Jesus is preaching about in our text this morning. Their traditions had influenced their beliefs and it influenced their practices about what it, what it meant to commit adultery. When was the proper circumstances to, to grant a divorce? The, the, the practices of making oaths. All these things were influenced and framed not by the Word of God, but by their traditions. They had let their traditions become their doctrine. And let me take a step back and say something. There is nothing bad about tradition. I went to Texas A&M. And if you know anything about Texas A&M, there is no university that takes their traditions further probably too far in some circumstances than Texas a and We love traditions. If you go on campus and something somebody does something more than once, it becomes a tradition. I have a hat that I've had for 21 years now that my wife would love to go home and throw in the trash, but because it is the traditional way that the, a, the Texas A&M is supposed to look, I won't throw it away even though it's falling apart. I love tradition. My family. I love tradition in my family. I think about the holidays. One of the the most controversial Christmases I can ever remember was the time that my mom decided not to have a real Christmas tree and went and bought a fake one. It about ruined Christmas because it, it changed our traditions in the McFadden house. I like familiarity and the comfort that we find in traditions. There's traditions that we have in in the church that, that are comforting. There's nothing bad about tradition unless tradition becomes our doctrine. And if we aren't careful, sometimes in the church, we can begin to place just as much emphasis on our traditions as we do on what is found in the Word of God. Usually when we quote Matthew 15 verses 8 and 9 that we read just a moment ago, we think about other churches, other religious organizations and and their teachings on things like baptism and and the worship service and other things like that. And we point our finger at them and we say, look, they're teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. They're taking their traditions and making them their doctrine. But I think sometimes we need to turn the mirror of scripture on ourselves and, and make sure That we don't become like the Pharisees and let our traditions become our doctrine. And that's what we strive to do at this place, to make sure that we are looking at doctrine and not just our tradition. It is tradition, the order of our services. Now, there are elements of the the elements of the service are not tradition, they are doctrine. We see the doctrine of, of taking part in the communion and taking part in, in, in prayers and all the things that we're doing this morning, that's doctrine. But the order of those services, there's nothing in the scriptures that say you need to do two songs and then a prayer, then a song, then the communion, then a song, and then the service, and then the invitation song, and then a closing prayer. That's our tradition in this place. We've done that for 30, I don't know how long we've done it here, at least 30 years since the McFadden's have been here. That's how we've done it, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's great, but if we changed it, if the elders decided to have four songs in a prayer and then communion, there's nothing wrong with that. It is a tradition that our services start at 10.30 in the morning. If the elders decided to make that at 9 o'clock instead of 10.30, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing in the New Testament that says thou shalt start Sunday morning services at 10.30 Central Time. But there are some that might become upset or think that we have messed with our, tradi- our, our way of doing things if we did that. And there are many other traditions that we have. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with traditions except when we place those traditions on equal footing with doctrine. In the church of Christ and in this place, we strive to uphold what we find in the scriptures. The leadership at this place view it vital that we uphold the teachings of the New Testament, that we follow the pattern that we find in scriptures, that we look to the example of the first century church and pattern our doctrine and our organization and how we conduct ourselves, it's vital that we continue to do that in this place. And I believe that that's a worthy goal and worthy practice, to be like what we find in the Word of God. We must do that. But we need to be careful that we're not confused on what we're trying to uphold. We need to look to the doctrine of the Word of God and not the traditions that we as men look and think that we need to have in the church. If we do that, if we let our traditions become our doctrine, we fall into the same trap as the Pharisees did. And we'll find ourselves in conflict with Jesus and his word. And that leads us to our next point that Jesus is making during this section of the sermon. And that's about the importance of of proper interpretation and application of the Scriptures. At the root of many of these traditions that the Pharisees had established was an even deeper problem, and that was they were in error in their interpretation and their application of the Scriptures. Despite the fact that they were supposed to be experts in the law, they failed to properly understand what the law was truly intended to do and how it was supposed to be applied. Notice the contrast that Jesus points out. Often during during Jesus' ministry, he would say things like, It is written. If you look when he was tempted in the desert, he said three times, It is written. And then he would quote some scripture. But that's not what he says here in the text that we read this morning. He didn't say, it is written. He would say, it has been said. He's quoting what the Pharisees have said about the law, and what he's he is implying is, you said this about the law, and what you said is wrong. You have interpreted and applied the Scriptures incorrectly. He isn't teaching against obedience to commandment of Scripture or, or that the old law was wrong. He's teaching about and clearing up the errors that the Pharisees had made in their interpretation and their application of the law. This is evident especially in the section where we see Jesus teaching about loving your enemies. In the old law, there's a passage that says, you shall love your neighbor. The Pharisees would look at this passage that you see on the screen and they would say, okay, great. I'm supposed to love my neighbor, right? But it doesn't say who my neighbor is. And it doesn't explicitly say who my enemy is. So now I don't have to worry about loving anybody else. I just need to figure out who my neighbor is and then I can love them and then I can ignore everybody else and I can treat everybody else poorly. That's why Jesus was asked so often during his ministry this question of who is my neighbor. He was asked this on multiple occasions that we see in the New Testament. And that was because this was a major theological argument during the day about who was my neighbor. I need to know who my neighbor is so I know who I actually have to love and and then I can go on about my business. But Jesus says as his disciples we are called to fulfill the law by doing what is intended what what the law intended to do, and love everyone, including our enemies. At the root of the error of the Pharisaical interpretation of the law was the heart. They viewed obedience to the will of God as this mechanical, physical display of obedience. And Jesus, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, shatters this idea by saying, that it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than the physical, mechanical action. Murder begins when we are angry in the heart. Adultery begins when lust is in the heart, not when the physical action occurs. The physical action is a manifestation of what is in the heart. Christ calls us to be different from the Pharisees, not just in our physical actions, but also in our attitudes and what's in our heart. Notice again what Jesus said there in the 47th verse that we read earlier. When he says, What more are you doing than others? He is saying, What are you doing that's different? This Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is preaching is not just a call to be different from the Gentile world. It's a calling to be different from the religious leaders and the traditional interpretation of the, of the law during the time of Christ. So I ask you this morning, what are you doing to be different from the world? If you look at your life, and you look at your life at school, you look at your life in, in your workplace, you look at your, your life and compare it to what you see in the world can you see any difference in your life and the life of those around you? And if you can't see a difference between your life and the life of all the other kids at school and the life of all the people in the office and the life of all the people that you run, run into, if you can't see the difference that Christ has made in your life, then something is wrong. We are called to be different We are called to be like Jesus. But that leads to the last thing that I want for us to notice this morning as we close. If I look at the Sermon on the Mount and I look at how Christ has said that my righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, if I look at my life and, and compare it in this mirror of Scripture that we talked about this morning, I am forced to come To a humbling realization. On my own, and I suppose speaking for myself and I I can't speak for, for anyone else, but on my own, I have failed so often to be any better than the Pharisees. Through my life, there isn't much that Jesus addressed, that Jesus talked about in this text that we read this morning that I haven't done or haven't given into at some point in my life. I've allowed anger in my heart that, that's led me to sin. I've, I've had lust in my heart. I've failed to keep my word. And I've been dishonest at times. I have retaliated against people. I haven't always loved my enemies. If being more righteous than a Pharisee means not doing the things that Jesus talked about in our text this morning, then I have failed miserably. In fact, I'm probably in worse shape than a lot of those Pharisees. And if you're honest with yourself, you probably might say the same thing. Jesus goes even further in verse 48 that we read this morning to say, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This echoes what Peter would say when he would say, Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. When I look at my life, do I see perfection? Do I see completeness? Do I see holiness? Not even close. Ah, but then I look to Jesus. I look to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and I see a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of a Pharisee. And not just do I see him standing there, but I see him offering to clothe me in his righteousness. Philippians, the third chapter, verse 9 says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter and the 21st verse says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners. He came to redeem us of our sins. He came so that we can be clothed with his righteousness. So now God no longer sees my sin. He no longer sees my unrighteousness. Instead, when he looks at me, he sees the blood of the lamb, and he sees the righteousness of his only begotten son. That is how our righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. By putting on Jesus Christ. The Pharisees wouldn't do this. They thought that they could be saved by their own righteousness. Yet we know that we must have the righteousness of Jesus to save us from our sins. C.H. Spurgeon said, while others are congratulating themselves... I lie humbly at the foot of Christ's cross and marvel that I am saved at all. I am amazed by the love of God that He could look at a sinner like me and send His Son to die for me, that a rebellious sinner like myself could be called the Son of God. But that's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. He came to offer to clothe me in His righteousness. And that happens when we obey His Word, when we allow our faith to move us to repent of our sins and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and submit to Him in baptism. And when we do that, we are washed in the blood of Jesus and we are righteous in the sight of God. Perhaps you've never done that and you'd like to do that this morning. We'd be happy to assist you with that perhaps you've been struggling with some things in your life and you'd like the prayers of the church, we'd be happy to do that also with you and for you this morning. If there's anything we can do, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.